Let's pray as we get going this morning. Father, I thank you that you are the God who is near to us. I thank you, Lord, that you are God with us. Not God against us, not God far away from us, but you are God with us. And I pray, dear Jesus, that you would be with us this morning as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are in a series um, from the first chapter of Timothy, from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Last week we talked about the first half of that chapter. Remember, Paul was writing to Timothy. And he's writing to Timothy, and Timothy was a young man, they estimate somewhere around 33, 34 years old. And Paul was his mentor. Paul was his spiritual father. There's a great love between Paul and Timothy. And Paul is writing because he had left Timothy in a city of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, you think of New York, Paris, London. It was a major metropolis. And this young man had the daunting responsibility of being really the first pastor of a congregation in that city. And things weren't going well. It was a mess. The church, in the, in the service, there was disorder. And there were things going on inside the church. They had a lot of arguments in the church about stupid things, like genealogies. One would say, well, I, get, I have authority here because my great-great-grandfather was of the line of Aaron, or I'm a Levite, or I'm... And they had all these arguments about genealogies. They had arguments about myths because there were a lot of myths. And so they were mixing in the gospel with Greek mythology. And, and they said things like false doctrines, like Jesus really didn't come in the flesh, but he was just an apparition. He was a floating, kind of like a ghost that looked like a man, but really was a spirit only. All these false doctrines. And Timothy, God bless him, he had the job of sorting it all out. He had the job of trying to make order and put truth into this church in Ephesus. And Paul couldn't go, so he sent a letter to his disciple Timothy. And in that letter, one thing that came out last week that I loved, he said, the purpose of right doctrine is love. Think about that now. We tend to think the purpose of right doctrine is to believe the right thing, to be right. And Paul makes it really clear. Yes, we want right doctrine. It's very important. But the goal of that is that we love each other. And so whenever you're dealing with doctrine, what's truth? What, what's the word of God say? It should always draw you into greater love for each other. It should change the way you live, not just the way you think. If your theology is stuck in your head and doesn't get down to your heart and your actions and the way you live, there's a problem. Christ is, has come to transform us. 1 Corinthians 13 says, If I have all knowledge and understand all wisdom, that's a lot, right? Never met anybody that had all knowledge and all wisdom, don't have love, nothing. So our theology has to get down into our hearts, into our lives, pure doctrine must result in pure love. Pure doctrine will always draw us and change us so that we love other people and we love the Lord more. So today we come to the second half of 1 Timothy 1. 
And Bill Baker, come on up and read for us this morning. This is 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 20. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may not learn to blaspheme. I want to pick this scripture apart in different pieces. I want to start at the bookend, which is around verse 18. Paul says, I entrust this to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So Paul reminds Timothy of a number of things. Number one, he says, I love you, my child, my son. Deep affection. He says, I love you. You're not alone in this. I'm not, I've got your back. I left you there to pastor the church, but let me tell you, I still love you. I've not abandoned you. I've got your back. And then he says, I trust you. I've entrusted this to you. So this was not Paul saying, Timothy, you're not really fixing this very well. Let me step up. Let's bring in the big dogs. Let's bring somebody in to put these guys in order. It wasn't that. He's saying, I've trusted you, but I'm here to help you, to strengthen you, to help you win this war. I know I've given you a difficult task. And may I say that when we give people tasks and we give them responsibility, it's important that we give them the corresponding authority that goes with that. If you give somebody a job to do and you don't give them the authority to walk it out, it's a frustrating position for them. And Paul wasn't doing that. He wasn't stepping back in and saying, out of the way, Timothy, it's time for me to make things right. He was saying, I trust you, but I'm here to help. And then he says, don't forget the prophetic word that was given to you. So we imagine that when Timothy was set in, they probably had the elders or some leaders come lay hands on Timothy. And there were prophetic words spoken over him. That's a good idea. Whenever we're placing somebody into a Position in the church, prayer, prophetic words are appropriate at that time. And Timothy had been received, he had received some prophetic words, and Paul's saying, remember those. They never take the place of Scripture. But prophetic words are powerful tools in the hands of God. 
Prophetic words are part of what brought Janet and I to this church, where God had a word for us two years before we ever got the call. Those words had power in our life. So that's why I really encourage us to be here Saturday night, because God will be speaking to us in ways that I believe will really mark many lives. And he says to Timothy, you can use these words to fight back, to keep yourself focused, to not lose the way. You know, I'm reading about how many pastors quit each year. Actually, thousands. It's a sad thing in America that we can figure out whatever reasons it is, but many pastors end up quitting over the, a given year. And I just say, God, we need to strengthen the men. I go by the churches and I pray, Lord, strengthen these guys. Bless these guys. I don't even know these churches. But you see a cross and I go, Lord, fill them with your spirit. Fill their churches up, Lord. Strengthen these men and women who are preaching the gospel. The word of prophecy is powerful. But what about these next verses? Kind of tough verses, right? He says, Paul hands over Hymenius and Alexander. He hands them over to Satan. You wouldn't want to be one of those two people, right? Where Paul hands them over to Satan. I thought, well, what does that really mean? You know, we picture, we picture God sometimes. God's up there with a big club. He's just up there. He's mean, and he's got a gotta have a beard. I don't have a beard this morning, but you know, he, he goes around and he's looking. Did you sin? He's just ready to smash you, right? Is that the God we serve? God doesn't have a big club. Our God is a God of great love. So what does this mean? Where Paul turns these two men over to Satan. Well, I believe it's important to realize what the discipline of God looks like. The discipline of God, if you can kind of picture here, is not God smashing you down. That's not how God disciplines. I believe a discipline of God is you're here and when you say, you know, I don't want it, God, I'm going to go my own way, the Lord is gracious to remove his presence. The discipline of God is this, where he says, all right, go for it. Let's see how that works for you. And he'll let you walk outside of his covering. And he lets you walk where Satan where you won't have that protection of God and the presence, I will be with you. Well, if you choose to walk away from that, that is your choice. And that opens you up to all the assaults of the enemy. And I believe that is a discipline of God like this. But notice the goal is always redemption. Just hear that this morning. The goal isn't show you, see how well you do without me. That's not the goal. The goal is that people would say, would turn. Repentance is turning, and they turn and they'd come back to God. That they would be redeemed, they'd be restored, they would repent and find their right relationship with God again. God's goal is always redemption. So that's the bookend. But I want to get back to the central part of this portion of scripture. In verse 12, Paul thanks God for calling him into the ministry of an apostle. Think about that for a minute. How easy was Paul's life? 
I mean, there's a prophetic word when Paul first starts out after he was taken off his horse, thrown to the ground. God says, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. Wow. Who wants that promise? Praise the Lord. Um, Paul suffered a lot. Paul was shipwrecked, spent time at night in the sea. I can't think of anything more terrifying. I've been on a ship for two years, and you look at that dark black sea and the idea of floating around out there at night. Terrifying thought. Paul spent nights at sea. He was beaten. He, was, he had to escape, flee for his life. And with all of that, Paul says, praise God for the privilege of serving Jesus. Praise God for this great privilege that God has given me to be an apostle. And I do believe what Paul is saying is, you know, all of this is momentary pain. But the great joy I have in the purpose of serving Jesus surpasses all of that. And that's what Paul's saying in verse 12. But then in the next four verses, Paul does something really unusual. I was reading this through and I thought, wow. He gives us a rather detailed description of his sins and failings. Think about that. If you want to impress somebody with a resume, would you start off by saying, let me tell you all the ways I've messed up. Let me tell you all the times I slept through and didn't get to work on time. Let me tell you all the times I've badmouthed the boss. Let me tell you all the bad things about me. Who would do that? And Paul starts off here. He says, in case you've forgotten, you know, in case you didn't know, get, get the memo, let me tell you the bad things I've done. I was a blasphemer. The word blaspheme is a two-part word in the Greek. It means to speak and to do injury. So Paul's saying, I did injury against the cause of God by what I spoke. I was opposed to the things of Christ. He says, I persecuted the church. Now he's talking to the church, so he's saying, I took your family members. I took your friends over in those cities. I was one of those people that drug them out of their homes and threw them into prisons. Many people you love, I may have been responsible for their death. Whew, what a letter, huh? I persecuted the church. He says, I fiercely opposed the gospel of Christ in every way I could. And then he just kind of wraps it up. I am the foremost. It means I am the worst. I am the number one sinner you've ever met. We all say hallelujah, right? What a strange letter for an apostle to write. Why would he do this? Wouldn't it have been wiser for Paul to go, I hope they kind of forgot those things. They're behind me. I'm a new man in Christ. But let me tell you the good things I've done so that you can be impressed with me. I mean, I've raised people from the dead. There was a young man named, um, did I get it right? Eutychus. Eutychus fell asleep while Paul was preaching long. Paul raised him from the dead. And he said, oh, I've suffered greatly for the gospel. Those were marks. I paid the price, brother. Or I've preached to kings and I've met with high priests. You should all be very impressed and therefore listen to me. 
this is my resume. Paul could have said things like that, but he didn't, at least not here. Paul paraded in front of everybody his sins and his failures and what a horrible person he had been before Christ. Why? I believe it's because Paul wanted the church to look to Jesus. He knew he's not going to be around for long. He knew sooner or later his life would end, probably sooner than later. And he's saying, don't trust in me. Don't look to me. Don't put your faith in me as an apostle. But let me glorify God. Let me tell you how wonderful this God is that we serve. His goal was constantly, how can I glorify Christ? How can I glorify Christ? And the word glorify is to make big in the eyes of another. It's how can I make you walk out of here this morning loving Jesus more? What can I do so that you walk out of here going, wow, God really is incredible. I want more of that. I want to love him more. I want him to give him more of my life. And Paul knew that he could serve as an example of how great God's redemption is. That if God can save wicked old me, then what can God do for you? He says, I received, verse 16, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, the foremost, the worst, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul gives us hope. Paul gives us hope. And when you look and you say, but I got that closet in my life. I've got that addiction. I've got that thing I did back there. How can God ever use me? We can look to Paul and say, if God can use Paul, who was the worst of the worst, and use him as an apostle of Jesus Christ, praise God. He can do the same for me. And one thing I felt the Lord speaking to us this morning is just to hit head on and say, do not let the sins of your past, the failures of your past, whatever they may be, do not let them limit what God can do through you today. God will take those exact things. Now, God never wants us to sin. He never wants us to mess up. I grant that. But we do. And when God comes in and works in our life, those same things can be used by God to minister to others, to bring hope to others. He takes them and he turns them around. I believe so that Satan goes, man, I wish I never would have messed with that one. Boy, they can take that broken and you can fill in the line. I don't want to name all sins. You can fill in your sins very easily this morning. But God will take what is lost and broken and use it for his glory. And Paul's saying, look at me. No matter what you've done, I was worse. Look at how patient God has been with me. That same patience is available to you. Reading Paul's letter made me think of Isaiah 61, verse 3. I wonder if Paul had this in his mind as he was writing. 
Isaiah 61, verse 3 says, The Lord provides for those who grieve in Zion. So these are people who are in great grief. And what does God do for them? He bestows on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. A garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair or depression. They will be called, so this is they, who were mourning, depressed, despair, grieving. Those guys are going to be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. See, that's what God really wants to do. He is all about, because he is all glorious and all worthy, he wants to be glorified because it's the right thing. And our job is to bring glory to the Lord. And when somebody was this way and then they met Jesus and then they became like that, people look and go, how'd that happen? How did that guy get like that? You say, well, Jesus. I was this way and then I met the Lord. And God gets the glory. And that's why Paul knew that. That's what he wanted. You know, there's a story I've been reading about this week. And it's about a linebacker named DeMarco Davis. Anybody read about his story? DeMarco Davis is a linebacker for the New Orleans Saints. Now, I wouldn't want to meet that guy in a dark alley. I wouldn't want to meet him actually on a football field. Because as a linebacker, his job is to hit people. His job is to stop you. And this is a man, but honestly, I would like to meet him in a dark alley. Because I like this guy on my side. And this guy is our brother in Christ. This is a man that's passionate in his love for Jesus Christ. And so, if you take a closer look at this picture, you see his headband says man of God. And this man had under his helmet this headband on that he put on that said man of God. And somewhere during the game on the sidelines, he took off his helmet and they saw this sign and it's a uniform infraction by the NFL to have any personal signs displayed during the game. So DeMarco was fined $7,000 for having this headband on. And so as the story goes, he was in an interview and he said, he was praying, saying, God, what would bring you most glory? How should I respond to this fine? He put in an appeal. But while it was being appealed, his question was, how can I bring you most glory by this situation? Maybe I should wear the headband every week, bringing glory to God, and just pay a $7,000 a week as my fine, and that will bring glory to God. Or maybe I should obey the rules of the NFL, which I play for, and obey them. God, and his question kept coming back to, how can I bring the Lord the most glory? Now, the NFL dropped the fine. They reversed their decision. But in the process of the press, word got out, and school children made headbands that said children of God, men of God, women of God. And they all started wearing this. And this thing went viral. 
And so he began to sell his headbands for $25 a piece, man of God, woman of God, child of God, and donate 100% of the proceeds. The $7,000 fine he gave into the, the donation, $60,000 was raised, another $60,000 was matched, and he donated 100% to a hospital in New Orleans. $120,000 was raised to this point, as DeMarco said, how can I bring glory to God through this infraction? He went on, there was a situation, I'm not sure the timing of this, but he had a major hit, guy going up for a pass, he hit him hard, the guy dropped the ball, and the guy stayed on the, on the field, hurt by DeMarco's hit. What did DeMarco do? This is now, you're a linebacker, your job is to hit people. While he was laying there on the ground in, in a you know, in a difficult situation, DeMarco dropped to his knees. And they have pictures of him. Here's this big, tough linebacker praying for the guy that he's just tackled. And DeMarco says, my question always is, how can I bring glory to God with my life? And I want to encourage us to have that question going home with us today. You can name the situation. It can be working. It can be playing. It can be how you spend your money. What if we bought our cars going, God, what car should I buy? What car will bring glory to your name? It's going to look different, different people. What if we bought our houses that way? What if we took our vacations that way? What if we made decisions in our families and in our marriages and in our friendships saying, God, how can I most glorify you by the words and the decisions that I make? And what if we were like Paul that used that when we talked about sharing our past? That's why testimonies are so powerful. What if we had people this morning who said, you know, I was addicted to meth. And then I met Jesus, and God set me free. What if we have people saying, you know, I, I walked, I was immoral. I was immoral in my life, but then I encountered Jesus, and Jesus forgave me, cleaned me up, brought me into right relationship. What if we have people that said, you know, I was just selfish. I did everything for me. It was all about me. I didn't care about God, didn't care about people, but then, then I met Jesus. Let me tell you how Jesus made me into a new person. What if we, I thought, what if we just had a line up here today? Let's line up and let's tell our sins. Might not be the best idea. Maybe it would. It might be the best media service we've ever had, you know? People getting real. Honestly, I don't think it's the best context. But maybe our life groups. Maybe our accountability groups where we say, let me just tell you what Jesus has done in my life. Those are powerful testimonies. Paul did not hide because he's saying, you know, you may not think well of me, but that's okay because my life is about bringing glory to God. And if I can bring glory to God by telling you how bad I was and things I did, Hey, line up. I'm going to tell you 
of what Jesus has done in me. 1 John 4, 7 and 8, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. God calls us to walk in the light because when we do, God gets the glory. I think of the song, To God be the glory, great things he has done, so loved you the world that he gave us his son. To God be the glory. May I say that as a church, people say things, well, all those churches are just full of a bunch of hypocrites. Well, the people who say that probably haven't been in church for a long time. Maybe they have. And maybe they've seen some of our lives and the failings we have, even as Christians. But I think, what would we look like if a church, if we opened our lives at that level? What if we said, I'll tell you what I've done wrong and let you know what Jesus has done? What if we got more real than we've ever been? There's other churches out there. I don't know what they're doing, but what if we did that as City Hill Church? One thing it would require is from those of us hearing about the sins of others is that we would constantly say, to God be the glory. Praise God for his redemption. Rather than saying, hmm, didn't know that. Boy, I'm not going to trust that person. We as listeners also have the responsibility of saying, always focusing on the redemption and the renewal of Christ. They could have said that about Paul. I'm not taking that guy as my apostle. He put my uncle in jail. No way. No, that isn't what, well, they might have said that, but Paul didn't care because his goal was bringing glory to Christ. Bobby, come on up. Because Paul wraps this up in verse 17. Because his goal was to bring glory. And there is a hymn, verse 17, you may not recognize it, but scholars believe that verse 17 was a hymn of the New Testament church. That they would have all known this song that Paul just kind of like breaks into song and we've lost the melody over the years. Well, you don't know this one yet, John. Um, I don't think you're that old. But the verse says, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And so this week I just asked Bobby, Bobby, could you try to put something like from that verse to music? We've got a song we want to teach you this morning as we close. And I give you praise. And Lord, I say thanks for all that you've done for me. Your love has set me free. And I give you praise. Lord, I say thanks. Your mercy has saved my soul. Your grace has made me whole. We're going to sing it again. We want you to stand up with us and try to sing along. And I give you praise. And Lord, I say thanks. 
Jesus. Father, I pray that God this week, the question that would go round and round in our mind is how can I bring glory to God? How can this decision, how can this word, how can this prayer, how can this purchase, how can this action of mine bring you more glory, God? Father, I pray that we as a church could be more and more open, even with our failures, God, so that your patience and your mercy and your grace would, would be seen in our lives for what you've done in us. Father, we say to God be the glory, great things you have done in us, Lord Jesus. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're our guest, I'd love to meet with you. We'll be at the table there on the left-hand side going out. If you'd like ministry, someone to pray with you, seek the Lord with you. We have a ministry team right over here by the cross. And hopefully, I'd love to see you Saturday night at our prophetic ministry night. Give somebody a hug. God bless you. Have a great week.